the uh, rest of the children go out now out to their groups. So I'm just going to pray before they go out. So, yeah, Father, I, I thank you that you love children, as, we, as we've seen up on the on the slide already this morning. And we just pray, Father, just be with our tamariki this morning, Father. Just really be upon them, bless them, and let them have heaps of fun this morning. Amen. So it is my privilege to be speaking this morning. Haven't we had some amazing talent already being performed this morning? Yeah, let's put our hands together for the... And so this morning, I just want to continue um, talking on the story that has already been shared to us so many times already, which is about uh, the woman at the well. Now, it's a story that I would argue has so much more to it than I think a lot of us realize. Um, So we're going to go into some of that. Um, Just bear with me as we go through some of the meanings behind the story, and uh, and then we'll go through it from there, and kia kaha koutou, you guys will be be all right. So what I've done uh, to start with, is I've given this lady a name. I just wanted to kind of personify it a little bit because always she's just the woman at the well and it's a little bit a little bit random for just this poor lady. So I just literally typed in on Google like Hebrew women's names and Miriam came up. So for for this morning, we're going to call her uh, Miriam this morning. Um, just to, yeah, as I said, just to personify her a little bit. So let's go through this story together. I've kind of cut out all kind of uh, what's happening and just kind of kept the script of, uh, of Jesus and Miriam Uh, and what they're saying. So kind of to set it up, Jesus decides to go to a place called Samaria, a place called either Sychar or Sychar, which is in Samaria, a place where Jesus probably shouldn't have really been going uh, because it belonged to the Samaritans who were uh, not the greatest friends, the Jews and the Samaritans. So already the start of the story, Jesus is going to Samaria, to this place, Sychar, and he comes, he's been walking with his his pals for a little while, and he comes across a well where he sees this woman at the well. And so this is the dialogue that happens between them. Jesus says to the woman, will you give me a drink? Miriam then responds, she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus then replies, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. To which Miriam replies, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus responds, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Miriam says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. To which Miriam responds, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yes, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Miriam says, so I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do now, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what we're going to do, Whanau, is we're just going to go back and we're going to break down this little corridor that's happened between uh, Miriam and Jesus and kind of see there's a, there's a few more things, I think, going on in this corridor than sometimes that we bring out in it. So first of all, as I've said, Jesus comes up to this well, sees this woman sitting there and says, will you give me a drink? To which she responds, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So what she's saying with that, you know, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. So what she's saying is, first of all, she kind of says, who are you to give me a drink? Because I'm, I'm a Samaritan. Because she knows that uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't get on. So Samaria, what happened with Samaria is when they used to be a part of the kingdom of Israel. And when Assyria came in and took over, uh, lots of the, the Israelites, they kind of kept hold of their God. But the Samaritans changed and they accepted a lot of the gods of the uh, Assyrians. So they kind of worshipped a mixture of these lots of Assyrian gods and also of the one god um, which the, the Israelites worshipped as well. So, um, so she already knows that Jesus is looking on her as unclean because the Jews really scorned the Samaritans for doing this. That while they held fast to their god, the Samaritans went chasing all these other gods. So the Jews really looked down on the Samaritans. So she knows that already. And so she says, I'm, I'm a Samaritan. How can you give me water? Uh, how, can I, how can I be giving you water? I'm just, why are you asking me? I'm nobody to you. And secondly, she says, I'm a Samaritan woman. So she says, I'm a woman. Back in those days, women were treated really badly. If you hear from my wife's preach a few weeks ago, she went into a little bit. But women were treated really badly. For a man to be seen talking to a woman in those days was big enough as it was. In fact, um, in Greece at the time, in Athens at the time, women were treated more as property than they were as people. So if a man was to rape or assault a woman, he wasn't done for assault or rape, he was done for damage of property, was what he'd be tried for. So Jesus is talking to her as a woman as well. And, and if you look through the life of Jesus, Jesus is constantly breaking that tradition and trying to fuck a man or woman, trying to lift up the man of women. It's really amazing the way Jesus does it. But so here, straight away, Jesus has come in, asked for a drink, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Samaritan and a woman, and you, you come to talk to me? It's pretty amazing already. So we get on to the next point where Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. To which Miriam replies, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? It seems already that Miriam has probably had some bad experience with men who have probably come in and told her a lot about what she should be doing, and most probably with Jews, because Jews would have really looked down upon the Samaritans. And not only is, does this Jew look down upon her, but this Jewish man has come into her area, into Samaria, directly to have a go at her. So already Miriam is straight on the defense. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. She's straight on the defense with Jesus. You know, Jewish people, they probably like to say, you know, you, as, as they, as, we are the one God. It's all our way, all about our way. And then this Jewish man comes up to her and goes, oh, if you should ask me for water. You know, you should be asking other people for water. And she's going, oh, here we go again. Another lecture from a Jewish man again. And so she responds going, come on, mate. You don't have a bucket. How are you going to give me water? 
Her then, then what she says after this, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? So what's she doing there is she's bringing, she's trying to almost align herself with Jesus again. She's bringing them back to their shared papa. So she's saying, you know, we, we both came from the same place at once. Kind of, come on, go easy on me a little bit. You've come into Samaria. You're the one who's come to have a go at me. We do have shared fuck this is the This is the place of our tupuna, both of our tupuna, of Jacob. So come on, let's, let's don't, don't be like that with me. Um, don't be like, like that with me here. So then Jesus says, you know, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Miriam says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, when I looked at that, I found this kind of this little bit quite interesting. So Jesus then said, You know, I can give you this water that will give you eternal life. And her response is, Sir, give me this water so, I won't, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here. And my initial response to, to when I read this was I thought, is it her thirst that's the real reason that she doesn't want to come back to this well? Or are there some more underlying issues? Because that's just how people lived in those days. They'd come back to the well to get water. That's just what you did. And so her saying, oh, I just don't want to get thirsty, so I don't want to come back here, it doesn't quite make sense to me. And so I wonder, is there something else going on in Miriam's life that is trying to say that for a reason why she doesn't want to come back here? And she's almost trying to, to me, it seems like she's trying to hide some things. And then um, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Hit it right on the button, doesn't he? He uh, hits that right on the button. And suddenly the shame that maybe Miriam was trying to hide suddenly comes forward. He says, go call your husband and come back. And Miriam says, I have no husband. To which Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, Growing up, I always read this bit in the Bible very differently to how I read everything else because it was almost like sassy Jesus came out. And, and I'd always read it from a point of view where Jesus was almost trying to one-up on, on Miriam, on this lady, where, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. That's right, you have no husband because you've been naughty, haven't you? And I was, I was like, well, it's how I always read it growing up. And I just, is it fair for me to read it like that when Jesus didn't do that through any other parts of the scripture? That's just, it's probably not the way what Jesus is trying to say. But what, I, what is happening here is Jesus has seen something which we probably don't quite understand because of our cultural context. So first of all, Miriam has gone to the well to draw water. For a woman to go to the well and draw water by herself was not a really done thing in that cultural context. The, the question most people would probably be asking, if you see a woman at the well getting herself some water, you'd say, where's her children? Where's her children? Her children should be there helping her gather the water. So the men would be out, they'd be doing the other type of mahi, probably in the fields or as Jesus was a uh, carpenter and other things, the women and the children would be getting the water. So the first thing that pops up is, where's her children? And then the second thing that happens is she says about her husbands. Jesus puts his finger right on the point, doesn't he? He says, where's your husband? She says, I, I have no husbands. And he goes, that's right, you, you've had five husbands already and the one you're now with isn't your husband. So what's Jesus getting at? If you put these two and two together, the fact that Miriam doesn't have a husband, she's saying she's had five husbands and now not with someone who's a husband, and she has no children. So what was the primary role of women in that time? The primary role for women was to have children, raise children, look after the home. Yeah? So that was the primary function for women. She doesn't have children, and she's had five husbands. So we go, well, what's actually happening here? Well, the truth, like probably what was probably happening in this time was Miriam was probably barren. She probably couldn't have children. So 
you know, she would have had her first husband and it would have been an amazingly celebrated thing probably. And then suddenly she couldn't have children. And so what was the cultural thing that people would do if you didn't have children? Well, you'd probably be left in a room somewhere just to get on with your ordinary thing. No one would speak to you. Remember, she's just a woman from those times. No one would speak to her. She had no purpose in her life anymore. She had nothing left to do. And so in the end, her husband probably divorced her, which probably gave her the option then to go back to her parents. And then she has another opportunity. She gets married again. And she, she can't get pregnant again. And again, the same thing happens. And imagine the shame of that. You know, for when me and Stacey, we were trying to get um, pregnant with, our, uh, with our, our first, with Isaiah. And it, it, took what, it seemed to be taking for ages for us. In the end, it only took eight, nine months for us to, to get pregnant. But every time the month would come around, just the hurt that we'd be feeling, oh, maybe it's not going to happen for us. Imagine that for Miriam every time, and that was just for us trying to have a kid in our cultural context, let alone it be the be-all and end-all for a woman in that cultural context. Imagine the pain that Miriam was going through. So we suddenly realised the reason she didn't want to go to the well was probably not from thirst, but she had to go on that walk every time out of shame by herself. A real sense of shame for Miriam to have to turn up every time by herself and have to draw water from the well. And now some Jewish man has come and started to point all this out to her. But when we read it again and we, when we know this cultural context, we can hear the love in what Jesus is saying. When he says, you're right you, when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. He lets her know. And the man you are now with, is, he's not your husband. So Miriam's probably given up with the fact of, of being married now and the fact of having kids. So she's, she's given up with that. And so her, her name was probably the talk of the town, the talk of Samaria. This lady can't have kids. She's had five husbands, still can't have kids. Probably the talk of the town. And so she's given up and has just gone to live with someone, probably not as the only woman that this man has living with him, but probably as one of a lot of, of wahine who are living with him at the time. It's a sad story, this one, a bit different from the one I, I used to read. Oh, that's right, you five months one. <laughs> the fourth point. Oh, giving my secrets away. The fourth point, uh, it says this. Miriam says, sir, I can see you are a prophet. He's just pointed out everything about her. <laughs> so I can see you are a prophet. It's amazing. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now this is one of the most radical things Jesus actually says to her. This part here. You see, what was the really, one of the most sacred things, if not the most sacred thing to the Jews at the time was that they had this temple. The temple meant so much to the Jews. It was a temple that they'd built and amazing, had been ripped down, and then they rebuilt the temple again. Just so much heart and soul of the Jewish people was in, the, in and about this temple. The only place where God would dwell was in this temple. And she goes, and she knows that. So she says, you know, I'd love to follow you, Jesus. I'd love to do this, but, but we only worship on mountaintops. And you guys say we have to worship in the temple. As a Samaritan, I'm never going to be able to worship in Jerusalem in the temple. I'm never going to have that opportunity. So what does Jesus say here? Jesus says, A time is coming when you will worship neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus starts breaking down these cultural barriers and these barriers that are stopping Samaritans to be able to come and meet with God. He's saying, 
it's not about the place anymore. It's not about the building anymore. But what's it about? He says he's after true worshippers to come and worship. He's just, this is a really big deal if we can understand it. To, to the Jews, the temple was everything. So for Jesus to come along and say, it's not about the temple anymore. It's not about that place. It's not about the place where we worship. Not about worshiping on the mountain. Not about worshiping in a special place. It's not about the place. It's about you. It's about the person, the individual, the worshiper. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. Imagine hearing that for a Samaritan. Someone who's been told they're not good enough, that they've worshipped all these other gods, they've betrayed Israel, and now they're being accessed to God again, being allowed access to God again. This is amazing stuff. Suddenly, Miriam has gone from a place of being left out and discarded to being able to come into this amazing relationship with God as Jesus opens that up to her. The relationship is something like this. This is the story of Ranginui and Papa Tuanuki. Ranginui is the man on the top. He is the sky father, God of the sky. Papa Tuanuku, the earth mother. Now, Ranginui and Papa Tuanuku, they, used, they were in a relationship like this. With Ranginui on top and Papa Tuanuku below, the sky and the earth had nothing to separate them. They were in this amazing, perfect relationship. A relationship that nothing was going to get in their way to separate them. They were two lovers in this amazing relationship. But then what happened? They had kids. They had kids. <laughs> One of their sons, a, a guy called Tane Mahuta, what he did is he was sick of this because he was cramped up in the middle. He was stuck in the middle of Rangi and Papa and said, oh, I haven't got any space here. So what did Tane Mahuta do? Is he kind of did some amazing handstand thing where he got down on his shoulders, put his feet against Rangi up the top and his shoulders against Papa Tuanuku and pushed and pushed and pushed and he separated Rangi and Papa. So according to Maori mythology, that's Tane Mahuta and the trees are the ones that separate the sky from the land. Now, did you know that we were designed to be in a perfect relationship with God? That's the relationship that we were designed to be in. Do you know that in Genesis it talks about how Adam and Eve used to walk in the garden with God? Exciting, eh? But then what happened? We sinned, yeah? And just as Tane Mahuta came in and separated Rangi and Papa, our sin got in the way and separated us from having this perfect relationship with God. And so imagine now the Samaritan lady hearing that she can come back into this amazing relationship. That what happened before when Tane Mahuta, the son of Rangi and Papa, he came to split Rangi and Papa up, but now we put our faith in the Son of God who hasn't come to split us up, but he's come to pull us back into that amazing relationship with him. Exciting, eh? Now imagine for Miriam seeing this for the first time. This is the relationship that she's now allowed to come and be back a part of. She was already knew what had happened with Genesis. She had that shared whakapapa already. She'd seen how Adam and Eve had split them apart. And then again, now she was kind of involved in all these other Assyrian gods. That gap had, she thought had got even further, a gap that couldn't be brought back together. But Jesus now opened a way for Miriam to come and be back a part of that gap. Now, Miriam's response to Jesus throughout this time, she kind of had three responses that I want to bring up. That, and these responses were what she used to kind of disqualify her from having this relationship with God, with Jesus. So her first one she brought up was about who she was. Remember, Jesus said, comes to drink water and she goes, but I'm a woman and a Samaritan. Already she's got things about her and she's saying, but I'm nobody, you know, and she begins to bring these things up. I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman. Who am I to be in this relationship with you, Jesus? Now, Fano, this is something we do all the time, isn't it? 
We begin to bring up things about ourselves, say things about ourselves that aren't true, or things that are true, and we, we begin to disqualify ourselves with these things. So what about this? What about people who have alcohol abuse? People who have drug abuse? And we say, Jesus will never be able to take, take me. He'll never accept me, because this is who I am. I am drug abuse and alcohol abuse. I'm a victim of domestic violence. I'm the abuser of domestic violence. I'm in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. I'm involved with homosexuality, transgender. I've had an abortion. I'm a porn addict. I'm selfish. I left my wife and kids. I left my husband and my kids. We begin to name all these things and say, this is who I am. How is Jesus ever going to accept me? This is who I am. Exactly the same way as Miriam did here, where she says, no, this is who I am. I'm a Samaritan and a woman. Who am I to be accepted by you, Jesus? Secondly, she then says who she wasn't. She says, how can I be good enough? I can't have kids. I'm barren. I'm not good enough. How can I be good enough for Jesus when I've had so many husbands? I'm not good enough. How can I be good enough for Jesus when I've had a past like I've had? Sorry, I'm missing all my slides. And maybe this is something that is familiar with what you guys are thinking as well. You say, how can I? I'm not a good enough person. I'm not good enough at sticking with things, so I'm just going to let people down. I can't have kids. I can't... You know, I maybe I think I'm a failure. This is what I think. Maybe I'm not a good father. I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good child. I'm not a good friend. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. How will Jesus accept me if I can't even be good to those around me in front of me? How is Jesus going to accept me? And then we come to the truth. And we're not worthy enough. The way that we live, we don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve this perfect relationship. We've sinned. How can we deserve to be in a perfect relationship with a perfect Father, a perfect God, when we're sinful? We don't deserve it. God is perfect, and for us to be in this amazing, perfect relationship with Him, we too must be perfect. So sorry, that's the end of my preach now. You guys can go. <laughs> and the Bible tells us that, doesn't it? I mean, we don't need the Bible to tell us that, but the Bible does tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't need the Bible to tell us that, do we? We can go home this afternoon and figure it out for ourselves. (laughs) That we mess up constantly, day to day, minute to minute, we mess things up, don't we? And no matter how good a person you are, though, even if you are the best of people, you're still not good enough compared to God. When we put the absolute purity that is God, compare ourselves to it, we always look like like a stain. We always look wrong. But then we hear the voice of the Father cry out to us. He says this, he says, What is the most important thing in this world? It is people, it is people, it is people. And Jesus desires so much for that relationship with his people. He desires so much for that. So what did he do? He sent his son down to this earth to die on a cross. His son who lived a perfect life to die on a cross for us. A son who, you know, we look at the stained glass windows and the pictures of Jesus dying on the cross and we think, oh, you know, that doesn't look too bad. But when we read through the Bible, Jesus was terrified of this. He's about to go through the crucifixion. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he says to God, he says, please, is there another way? I don't want to have to go through this. Is there, if there's any other way, let there be another way. But then do you know what he says? Probably the most beautiful sentence you'll find in your Bible, which is he says, but Father, let your will be done. Let your will be done. I will go through this because I know how much you love the world and I know how much I love this world. Let your will be done. I will go through this pain now. 
So Jesus dies on the cross. He takes all the sin of the world with him on that cross, and the sin of the world dies with it. You know, I read out some things before. Alcoholism, drug abuse, victim of domestic violence, abuser of domestic violence. You've had abortions, porn addicts, selfish, leaving your wife and kids. All of that dies on the cross with Jesus. Anything that you have ever done and anything you will ever do dies with Jesus on the cross in that moment. When he says, Father, let your will be done, and it is done. And he says, what did he say on the cross? His last words, it is finished. It is finished. Your sin is finished. But not only that, that's not the end of the story again. But Jesus rises again. Three days later, Jesus rises again, conquering death, conquering sin for all time, so that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, but we can no longer live freely as what? You know, the story should finish there. He's taken our sins away. He's taken, but what? He makes us sons and daughters of himself. You think the story can't get any better, but then he makes it even better. You know, I would think, he's taken my sins away. I'm happy, just evaporate me there. I'll live a happy life, you know, done. But he says, no, you are my sons and daughters who will live with me for eternity. What do we sing in Amazing Grace? Grace, About 10,000 years and 10,000 more years and add a few more tens of thousands on top of that and keep going because we are destined to live with our Father in heaven forever. This is what was offered to Miriam, this amazing thing. Now, can I, can I just get the uh, Jack or someone to come up and start playing? Now, this is exciting, yeah, and it's great. So Miriam comes into this amazing relationship with God, with Jesus. She then goes back. The, the Samaritans in her hometown, they all give their life to God. Jesus stays with them a few days. Basically, a revival happens in Samaria. Many people turn to, turn to God. And it's exciting. We say, and, but this is part, sometimes when we tell the gospel, this is sometimes where we finish. We say, come and know Jesus. He will give you the water of life. Come to him and he will give you rest. But let me tell you something, Fane, is that to become a Christian is not just an easy, laid-back thing to do. It requires sacrifice, Fane. When we come to God, he, he, asks, he asks us to give things up. So we come as we are. Jesus accepts us as we are, but we must be willing to give him our life. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that suddenly every area of your life is going to be easy anymore. Jesus never says that. He never promises easiness. In fact, he says, he says the opposite, unfortunately. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Ah. Oh. But take heart, Fano, for I have overcome the world, is what Jesus says. Following him will never be easy. I've been in places around the world where I've seen people kicked out of their homes for following Jesus. People whose parents started starving their kids because their kids turned to Jesus. People who have been shot at. People who have had family members who have been killed. People who have been completely disowned. Being in those places, I think, man, we have it so amazing where we are in New Zealand. But this is the price of the gospel. And so because these people have given up so much, I then go to a baptism service, and it's it's better than any baptism service I've been to over here. Because people who have given up so much to be with him are now coming into this fullness of Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are my everything. Without you, I am nothing. Whānau, we have so much to learn from some of those places, don't we? When we live in a world where we have everything at the tips of our fingers, where Jesus, he's just an added extra. Jesus was never, never an added extra. He's everything. You come into a relationship with Jesus. You give your life to Jesus in exchange for his. Etu whānau, let's stand.
I just want to finish with this quote. Oh, there we go. A guy called Jim Elliott, he was a missionary into Ecuador. He gave everything. He ended up giving his life for, for Jesus as he, was, uh, as he was martyred by some of the tribes people he was trying to reach. But an amazing quote by Jim Elliott that he says, he says this, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus says, come to me. He says, come and I will give you eternal life. But by doing so in our response of coming to Jesus, we say, Jesus, take my life. Don't take my Sunday mornings. Don't take little parts of who I am. But we say, take everything of who I am, Jesus. Jesus, we give it all to you. How can we not? You know, you, can, you might try and hide little parts of, of your life from him. He knows. We've seen it. He told Miriam about the five husbands and the one he's with not being, not being her husband. He already knows everything. And so what do we say, Fano? We say, Jesus, come and take who I am. Come and take all of me this morning. Fano, I encourage you, if you're not yet in this relationship with Jesus, maybe some things need to change. Hear what Jesus is saying when he comes and he looks at, at anyone, no matter what thing you have done wrong in your life, you come and bring that to Jesus and it's dealt with. Dealt with at the cross. Do you know what? Jesus doesn't see you by what you've done anymore, but he sees you as the standard of who Jesus is. He sees you as perfection now. So that when you come up to a perfect God, you can come and be in this relationship with him because you yourself are now perfect. Seen as perfect. This is what they call the scandal of the cross. That someone would give up, some perfect person would give up their life for us. What we're going to do, Fano, is we're going to now hand over to Jack to sing us through a, a song real quick. Join in with him. And then there's going to be an opportunity for you, if you haven't yet given your life to him, for you to do that this morning. Now what else shall I need? Your name brings light It's more than the air I breathe My world was changed When your love you gave for me My purpose found And all that you want for me And I found myself in you Shall I 